Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much to all of our listeners and all the people who are posting five-star reviews. Thank you so much. And thank you for the beautiful words that go along with the review and the individual reason that you chose to rank it so highly. And it's all very meaningful to hear what you have written. And thank you to our listeners in Australia, Norway, Turkey, and Poland, and all over the world, of course. This week, we have someone special on, Marissa Hackett. And Marissa has a really wonderful and difficult and beautiful story to tell about finding a way out of a situation that is so, so difficult, and it would be for anyone. Marissa was born in 1979 in Los Angeles, California. And at the time of her birth, her parents were involved with a group called the Foundation of Human Understanding, which is a right-wing cult led by Roy Masters. When Marissa was 11 years old, she moved with her family to Southern Oregon, where Roy moved the headquarters of the group and opened the only school Marissa attended in her childhood, Brighton Academy. As a Black family, this experience created unique challenges for Marissa as she navigated life. Today, Marissa lives in Seattle and identifies as a fierce progressive. She's a proud auntie, sister, daughter, niece, godmother, and friend. Those are great titles. She shares a life with her partner and husband, Aaron. Marissa absolutely loves music and being in nature, and she currently resides in Seattle, Washington, where she is a grad student in couples and family therapy at Antioch University. Happy to have her in the field. Marissa is beginning to write about her story for the first time at marissahackett.substack.com. And here's Marissa now. I am so happy to have Marissa with me here today. I love when people get to talk about their experiences when they're feeling ready to do so. And when it's a first time that it's happening, I know it can come with some some potential worries or just thinking, I haven't done this before and I I want to. I mean, there was reason enough, certainly, that you had to want to move forward with this, which I value. I think that it's nice to get to a place where you can say what's true for you. And also as a brief caveat, just for listeners, this isn't something that I think people have to do because I know sometimes people contact me and feel almost apologetic that they're not ready. It really is a very individual decision. And it's if you think it's going to be part of your healing also uh, or not. So I am so happy that our worlds have converged, that you're wanting to talk and I have a forum to do so. And so it's really nice to meet you. Uh, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you. Just as you set the tone for this space, it's the reason why I'm here. I, for the first time, wanted to ensure that the space that I chose to tell my story in was grounded in healing and compassion and understanding and graciousness. And when I stumbled upon your space and how you hold folks when they're um, on your podcast in regards to honoring their stories and how they want their stories to be told, that's when I knew I found a space that I could 
really sort of explore why I'm telling my story and why now and that it's born out of similar goals that you have for your work that you do. And I'm really inspired by the work that you do. So it's really an honor to be here with you knowing, and I just trust that it's going to be just a good conversation and we can talk to each other, but also folks out there. So I'm Marissa Hackett. I uh, live in Seattle, Washington. Currently, I share a small little home with my partner and husband, Aaron. I'm a proud auntie and daughter and sister and godmother and niece and friend. I'm also in my sixth or seventh quarter at Antioch University Seattle studying couple and family therapy. I'm still in my academic phase of that, just starting my internship search period, hoping to begin my research or my internship um, in January of 2024. And I'll do a year of that training in hopes of then entering into the world of therapy and mental health. So that's me. When people talk about the experiences they've had within particular groups, one of the things that sometimes people find really educational is to find yourself in forums, in environments where you can have critical thinking, where you can dissect something, where you can have a differing opinion, where you can ask a question, you know, and to disagree safely, even though I think sometimes people have to conform to it because they still need to get a good grade on the test. Uh, But still, ultimately, You don't have to, in your heart and in your head, agree with everything that is being taught. And that's sometimes very different from people's experiences within certain structures where you didn't have that liberty. And so it's sometimes really nice to have that. And so let's hear about your experience and I guess, you know, where it all began. Let's do kind of a chronology if we can. So I was born into what I term as a fundamentalist right-wing cult in 1979 in Los Angeles. I was born at home in my parents' bed in West LA, a home that my parents bought maybe, I think, seven years prior on my dad's military loan. And my mom had, I had three older brothers that she had already given birth to. So I was the fourth child to come along and Uh, My mom had given three or had three hospital births. And by that time, she had developed a strong um, aversion to Western medicine and hospital setting after my three older brothers. So she was very adamant about having me at home. And so I was born with a midwife and I hear, I heard, I've heard the story many times. That's why I, I, I think about it often because I was the first girl in a family of brothers in our family, that happened to be a big deal. So the story of my birth was told many times because it was at home and it was unique. At the in the late 70s, home births were not that common. And my mom wanting to do it was very controversial in her family and the community and society. That already sets the tone that she was an original thinker. She nobody told her what to do ever. As my One of my uncles said she went from an Angela Davis type to following Roy Masters. So for those that know Angela Davis, she's a left-wing activist, one of my heroes, 
and what my mom believed in, she believed in wholeheartedly with her whole, whole heart. So I was her first and actually the only of the six kids that ended up being born at home because the rest, my younger brother and sister that came along ended up, they, both of those births started at home, but they both ended up in the hospital. So in regards to what I was born into, when I became aware of just sort of my life in West Los Angeles, it was that no one was going to school in my household, I noticed. But my older brother, so I have three older brothers, and that's kind of my first awareness that we were different a little bit because everyone, we were all home all the time. My dad was working. My my father was a local truck driver, and he delivered um, hospital supplies in the Los Angeles area. So he would leave early in the morning, and he was home every night. So he would go pick up his truck and go drive, and it was amazing. We always thought it was like, he would just go drive a truck in the middle of the city and to all the hospitals. And we'd sometimes go meet him or he'd bring, um, he'd drive or we'd meet him at one of the hospitals and it was cool, but everyone was home. Um, we lived in my, the beautiful thing about that home in Los Angeles was that my mom's brother and my uncle owned his home on the same street that I was born on, literally across the street. You looked out my window and you could see the home my my aunt and uncle purchased a few years before my mom and dad did. So I have a cousin that was born in August of 79. And then I came along in November of 79. So he was born in the hospital, a little more traditional, but we were just immediate close friends and cousins. And then there was another set of cousins that aligned with my older brother. So we were really close, very, very close family. I mean, we could walk into each other's homes. We didn't knock. It was just, we had basically two homes living across the street. So that was what I was born into. We weren't going to school. My older brothers weren't going to school. And I knew that my mom was adamant about not just home births, but homeschooling as well. I started early to get the messages that public school was evil and it would pollute our brains. We would be brain brainwashed to believe things that weren't moral and just. So we were kept home and weren't involved in any formal homeschooling environments. I think we tried, there were some that we ver- that we would pop into here and there, but there wasn't any formality to it. And there was an occasion where we would go to maybe a, a more casual, like outdoor type school where we wouldn't, we would just more play than do any academic work. So there was a lot of play and free play. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of my childhood. My imagination was wild because we were playing a lot. And, but I also craved formality of school. I saw my cousins going, I saw all the kids in our neighborhood going, and we would just wait for them to get home from school. And then we'd play. So my brothers and I would just wait and play and wait for them to come home. And then we would play. So it was, that was my normal. So as you're describing it, it sounds like a summer camp, you know, it sounds like this idealized or idyllic kind of environment. And I think kids don't have a sense that they're not getting the academics that they're supposed to be getting. They're just happy to be playing. As an adult, even as a teenager, I think you can sit back and wonder, like, how come I'm not learning certain things? And am I going to be? But just that you were kept separate, but you still had a community to be with, but you didn't have a chance to be with other people, sounds like out of this fear. Is that something you wished you could have had uh, even at the time? Were you wanting to spend more time interacting with others? 
I desperately did. And we had other teasers into interactions because we, my parents, while they kept us out of public school and formal school, they involved us in a tremendous amount of recreational activities and social activities. So all my, my, myself and my older brothers, we were all um, involved in swimming in Los Angeles. So in the summers, when all the public school kids were off school and were on swim teams, we would join and spent time in Cheviot Hills as um, swim team members. So we learned, I was started swimming competitively when I was six six until 11 until we moved to Oregon. And my brothers were lifeguards at the pool. So my mom, my parents knew that community was important for us. And that was our, we didn't have the public school. We didn't have formal school. There was a tremendous amount of lack of education. You know, when I reflect on it, I realize that, but we had community. I mean, there's no question. So when you talk about, you know, there's a lot of trauma with, the way my life ended up, but community is something that anyone that knows me well knows that I always talk about community. I always talk about finding your community. And that's something that was instilled early with how my parents opted to create, you know, a life for us kiddos. So we had the pool life, we swam, and that was a big part of my childhood and played soccer. And my brothers were all-star baseball, BMX racing, hockey, So I learned we just did all of that. We just weren't going to school. So simultaneously, my mom was going to meetings. That was my awareness. We didn't celebrate Christmas. It was too commercial. And we didn't go to a church. We didn't, the kids didn't go to meetings. The parents were going to meetings. That was my awareness. And around age nine, 10, I started putting the pressure on my parents that I really wanted to go to school. I desperately wanted to go to school. I had dear friends on my block that were going to school. I wanted that formal environment desperately. Like it was just so hard. Like we made the best of it and our parents, you know, it created community, but we were still really different, just so different. And I knew like my, my, and this is, you know, one thing I have to say, this is my story. This is me, little Marissa's version of, of our life. And I just have to say that out loud. So, cause I can't speak for my three older brothers, my parents. I'm just this little girl thinking I want to go to school and I want to learn. And I was a lot of people who knew me knew I was an old soul or, or, or said things like that. I've always been very intuitive. So I could see that I was very different. And one of the most traumatic experiences of my childhood that I mean, only people really, really close to me know is one of the only times I've ever been in a physical fight is when I was maybe nine years old and a friend made fun or was making fun of me for not she said something, or not a friend, a, a friend of a friend. It was another friend that I didn't know. And she said, she made fun of me for being homeschooled. You don't even go to school. And I just like, that's when I knew I was so sensitive to being different. And I just like physically reacted. And we fought in the middle of a friend's living room for those that have been in any sort of physical fight. And I wish I'd never have been like that pounding and, and pain. Like that's the one thing that ever got me to strike someone was like defending my being different and homeschooling because I knew it was weird. (laughs) I just like, and this person saw it and she was essentially calling me out for it. So I was probably mad at my parents and mad at not her. I mean, she just named it and I reacted to it. 
when that happens, when you suddenly just unleash on someone and that's not who you are, it's very often because things have accumulated inside and it just needed some, like a flashpoint to turn it into this raging fire. And so I think, yeah, you were probably having a lot of those moments of feeling different, of kind of hoping not to be called out and hoping people didn't notice how different you were or how different you felt you were. Because really being homeschooled, there are a lot of people who are homeschooled. Some kids are proud of it, some kids are not. And it depends if it also is one of the many things that you felt kind of made you potentially different. Having parents who are involved in something also that is different. When you're young, you so often just want to be like everyone else. It's not until you kind of turn this corner of maturation later on, even past the teen years, where you realize actually there's not something so ideal about being the same as everyone else. And in fact, I'm going to do my own thing, but you don't have the confidence when you're younger to carry that and to say, yeah, I'm me. And so what? I mean, I very rarely, if ever, I've heard a kid say that. So how interesting that you got to see how much emotion you had inside when it was just triggered in that way. What else were you worried about people calling you out on whether they did or not? One of the other things that I was called out for that I remember was being uh, made fun of for talking like a valley girl. So I was also um, a young Black girl that didn't feel like I belonged in a lot of spaces either because I wasn't being educated with other Black girls. I wasn't being educated with other white girls or Latinx girls. I just was being, I was home with my mom and my brothers and the neighborhood kids, which is very, we lived in a culturally multicultural neighborhood, our block. And I'm so grateful that that was, those were my earliest years. And I would help our, the older Jewish family across the street in their greenhouse in the backyard. And we had a queer couple down the street and we had a black nurse or on one side and a black attorney on one side and my aunt and uncle who are in an interracial couple. So we, I mean, that was my reality. And we had, and my black parents owning a home, you know, in the seventies and eighties in Los Angeles, it was kind of a, we were different and we were, and we, while we were in West LA, we were just on the cusp of different neighborhoods to where I know my parents saw that my older brothers were being tempted by the gang culture in West LA. And that was also, I think what my mother was scrambling to get ahead of with finding something to, just due to, she saw it. I think my mom was an intuitive empath as well. Like I am. And she read it. My brothers didn't move with us, but she um, wanted our, our family out of LA because she just felt something was coming. And so I was made fun of for talking like a white girl. I wasn't going to public school. My brothers were very involved in the neighborhood and we were the house where all their friends would come over and play basketball in our backyard. And I had braids like I do now. And I was like the little sister of my brothers who were very involved in the neighborhood. And my parents were were very stable and loving and people hung out at our house. I mean, it was, everyone knew my parents. They were, we were different. Oh, the hack it. No, the, the kids aren't going to school, but it's still a safe place to go. And it's, you know, you can trust them and, and they're not bad people. They're trying to be different. And that's just what's going on. So that's kind of how I felt. It wasn't 
you know, I wasn't aware of the level of involvement because I, it, this is, you know, we moved to Grants Pass when I was 11. So I, I started puberty at age 10. I was pretty young. So I was aware and, and like pretty emotional. And that's like when I started, when I had that fight, it was just leading. It was around that time. And so my father from truck driving for years injured his spine and had spinal surgery on the recommendation of medical professionals, or he was going to lose. He was already getting tingling. He was going to maybe not be able to walk. And he retired from truck driving and from the company at age 49. My mom was home with us uh, my entire childhood. So my, my mom was always home. My father worked. And then at age 49, 40s, he started having health issues related to his spine. He had surgery and he was able to medically retire at 49. That's around the time Roy was building and the foundation of human understanding was building Brighton Academy, the one and only school I ended up attending. And my mom motivated our family to move to Grants Pass after my father had his surgery and it was determined that he wouldn't be able to work again in that sort of field. And it was just going to make sense for him to be done working. So Grants Pass got on our radar, which I was aware of because we had vacation there multiple times. I think the first time we went to Grants Pass that I've been told of is when I was an infant in 80, I think, or 81. And that's when Roy and the foundation purchased the ranch is what it's called in Selma, Oregon, um, in Southern Oregon, adjacent to Grants Pass. And so my early memories is at six, seven, we would drive up from LA. We'd road trip up. We'd stop in Oakland, visit, stay with family, and then make our way up to Southern Oregon. Grants Pass is just a little bit over the California border. So we would stay with other families that were there. We didn't have any, or, yeah, with just friends, people that we knew through the through the foundation. And moving in the 90s, we're very late to move to Grants Pass compared to when a lot of other families moved. So when Roy bought the ranch in early 80s, a lot of families moved from all over the country to be in that space through the motivation of Roy. And that reach happened because Roy had a talk radio show that reached a lot of folks. Right. And the talk radio show was very big. And that's where a lot of people first heard him and heard of him. So I would love for you to talk about him and who he is. And for people raised at a certain time, they probably had heard his name, but still there wasn't a sense of sort of who who he was and why he did what he did. So I'm sure you know a lot about him now. So tell us, teach us about Roy Masters. I'm always learning more and I I do know what I know. I never knew him personally. I've met him on multiple occasions. I wouldn't say he was a friend or an acquaintance or anything of that nature, but I have photos with him. I've said hello and and that's it. So growing up, my mom was an avid talk radio listener. My memories of her everywhere we went in the car, because we were always with her, was um, there was a radio show on, whether it was Rush Limbaugh, Art Bell. And I don't have as many memories of Roy being on the radio. I just know that that's how she started listening and that's how the story goes. So I don't have the memories of Roy as much, but his his show was on, I believe it was on AM and it broadcast across the country. And it was definitely based in 
kind of a spectrum of beliefs that I think drew a lot of people to it. It was very, just based on the beliefs that our family observed, it was very um, doomsday. That's one of the first things I don't think a lot of people know. We were preppers. So Roy talked a lot about the end of the world coming and preparing for end of times and sort of getting your, your life in order and getting to the safest place to with your family and isolating yourself against you know the evils of the world so we had growing up once we moved to Grants Pass we had rice and beans in our garage the tubs of dry goods and cans and because the message and I and um so so that's sort of just one spectrum of it and the other spectrum Roy, then I think the reason my parents got involved, he also talked a lot about morality and from a a very conservative moral high ground is how I view it. And that there were messages about how to better your life. It was sort of self-help. And I know that my mom was a seeker and she was seeking for truth and, and how to just do life. And she found Roy's messages over the radio and it I think clicked with her and it was um, an invitation to come to a center in in Los Angeles to start hearing him talk about how to get your heart and your head right and from what I've listened to going back and listening to some of the radio shows and they're available I mean very publicly and it some of it didn't it was nothing very con- concrete. Some of it wasn't concrete. Like you can come do things with your mind and your heart. Um, a lot of Roy's beliefs were grounded in patriarchal, sexist um, beliefs, in my opinion. And it was sort of teachings that taught men how to sort of be the best leads of their families. And I think that was something that was appealing to my parents being my mom was 20 when she had my first brother. So folks can listen to Roy and interpret it how they want, you know, and, and, but, but I found, so the, the main themes that I found it was patriarchal, sexist, doomsday, libertarian, um, also some, some, some libertarian beliefs in that there was a lot of, and I don't know all that was promoted on the radio, but the radio show was on for years and years and years and years. And to this day, Roy's children, sons still continue the similar messaging. And that's, you know, kind of leads me to why I'm speaking out now, because there's still a lot of parallels in what I hear with today's right-wing talk radio and news and what I grew up hearing. Right. So let's delve into that for a moment, because here, when you talk about someone who has a radio show and has a community and you're thinking, okay, well, they're another person who has strong views about X. Still, there's something that took place where he didn't just talk to the public, but he really was in charge of a community of people's families where he really dictated how you lived your lives and how you were raised in a very tangible way. And it wasn't the people who were just sort of, you know, following his theories. He influenced a lot of people to feel a certain way about themselves. And for women, I think, to feel a certain way about themselves and for men to also have more of that in entitled air as he had from what I remember. How did the teachings impact you as you were growing up as a young woman? And also what were his thoughts about specifically about men and thoughts about women? 
I know in my circle of friends, which has been my saving grace and all of this, we've talked about how it, the impact on women or anyone identifying as women, any femme sort of existing person in our community, there was so much shaming. This is one of the areas where there's so much hurt and pain. And for everyone that had to have that message, because the teachings were so binary and unrealistic about how you do life, men do this, women do this. So for example, I think a lot about the messages about women and it's very Adam and Eve, women are evil and the demise of, they cause the demise of families. That's literally what the teaching was. So women must mind their P's and Q's, behave. And if they're out of order, then they're causing, if there's problems in the family, it must be at the core. It must be something the female of the family is doing. That There was no question that was what the teachings were. So as young women growing up, if there were any semblance of liking sex, for example, for anyone, there was so much shame for being considered a sexual being. Even if someone else sexualized us, we were shamed for it. If someone else thought we, so we had these strict dress codes, and of course it was mostly directed towards women. I had my, my skirt measured and sent home because my it wasn't appropriate. And of course, it was about tempting men, tempting the boys, not about, you know, and this, this modesty and morality and sh- filled with shame. And I understand, you know, being appropriate, you know, and, and we taught these lessons, but it was all for me grounded in shame and hurt and people not being able to live their authentic, live as their authentic selves. And there was this expectation, as you talked about, that we were to be, to follow the teachings of Roy. And the foundation and his books and to subscribe to that. And if we were, like you talked about, to think critically or to think different, we were ashamed also. And that takes a lot of unpacking to do when you're, when you end up being different. When I moved, so we moved and I was different. I landed in this space where I'm a few years after a lot of the kids that grew up in it. And I'm already hit puberty and I've seen some things and I'm like, okay, I want to go to school, but there's a lot of like inconsistencies about like the hierarchy. I could just see that there were people in charge just because it didn't, some things were just not making sense. Like there were some inconsistencies about why were we, why was public school bad? And why were we the only, like we were, we were definitely isolating ourselves with our family and friends that were affiliated with the school and the foundation. So it like my red flags went up like this does, this seems weird. It was just off, but I wanted so desperately some normalcy. So going to school, having classrooms and classmates and being able to get involved in school activities and teachers and principals. And I wanted that so bad. And so I made the best of it. But when we first moved, my parents made uh, well, oh, anyone, my 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 siblings and my parents. No, I didn't talk to my parents for a month. I stayed in my room the first in June of ninety one because we the move was unexpected from LA. We were just living our community, free play life, and not celebrating Christmas. We were the you know, but it, we were different. But it was in a just a way that worked. And then we moved, and we didn't have our 
family or the kids we grew up with. And it was very traumatic. And no one asked us kids, you know. And we left our my older brothers there. It was just like our whole family got split up. And then we get into this environment where I'm getting shamed if I don't, if I'm not perfect, you know, it was, I saw immediately that people that didn't fit in, in that Brighton Academy environment were ostracized and shamed. And it was so like, because I was a little bit older and I was a feeler, I could just see it immediately that if you weren't in a certain group or a certain family, you weren't accepted. And because I was, I had, I was doing this big move and I was just born with the capacity to be able to adjust. I did, but I also connected immediately with the kids that weren't being accepted. And and my mom saw it too. And I know she did because we were the family that in LA, we had a family that lived in our backyard, that camped out in our backyard that my mom met. Next thing I know, we have this family that's moving out from the East coast that we met through the foundation that's living in our backyard. So the community part was important to my mom. Like I respect that to this day. I mean, that's why community is at the core of my being. And so we had this family who, I mean, I know to this day that lived in our backyard and they moved to Grants Pass and then we did shortly after, but it was just our own little community. So when we moved, it was just the hierarchy and the the people in charge and from sixth and seventh grade, it was, but, but with that said, I was in my happy place. I was, I, but I was behind academically. So I had to um, do a lot of tutoring and I definitely was behind academically. There was a lot of shame. I still carry a lot of shame with that. Well, all the more reason I'm so happy for you that you've gone on then for more schooling and you get to also go into a field where there is a lot of, I think about this for doing counseling. There is a lot of education. Yes, you want the background. Yes, you want to learn about theories and the theorists and about the mind. But some of it is intuitive and some of it comes from life experience. And I think you're going to be able to bring so much to the field because of having a real sensitivity, a real lived experience about feeling judged about things happening that you can't consent to, that you don't have power over, about hurt and losses. And I think just needing to somehow be fine and that you were, you need a chance to talk about how you were not fine. And to, I'm sure you're going to give other people a chance to do that too. A lot of decisions are made for kids. And sometimes it makes all the difference or most of the difference to have someone say, are you okay? Or is this, if this is hard, We might not change our minds because we're adults who are focused on thinking that this is the right thing, but let me at least address your feelings and let's find a way for you to stay in contact with your brothers, with people who you're going to be missing and, you know, accommodating your needs. But so many of the people I talk to talk about that suddenly they were flying to India and they're in third grade. what what and don't speak the language and don't know and don't know the community and don't you know somehow also have to be happy about it or at least just not mad and sad because there isn't a lot of in these groups there isn't a lot of room made for that what was it like for you if you had a certain feeling did you get that message like marissa can be joyful and she can be dutiful but she probably can't be resentful and livid <laughs> So what feelings were okay and what feelings were not? I was grateful. I mean, I think 
I sense that my parents question, I like, well, I know my mom questioned the decision all the time if moving was the right decision. So I didn't want to disappoint her, you know. I know she carried a lot of sadness with the family being torn apart. Reading that and us being so connected, I just made the best of it. I was their kid that just did everything, you know, I did sixth and seventh grade and then, but I also just was doing, I probably did too much, you know, I carried so much. And then at seventh grade, the principal said, um, we think Marissa's ready for high school. So you're going to, so I skipped eighth grade. I just, excelled and it was because I was surviving you know so I saw I was a little more mature than the other kids with my age group and they everyone could see that so we got called into a meeting and the principal's like I think you know you're probably your friends are already older my you're being drawn towards the the older kids and this is my first time in, in, in a formal school so they didn't know where to place me and just mentally emotionally and academically even with being behind was more about the emotional maturity is how it was framed. I still was, I was right in there academically, but that's how even that environment viewed me. And I get plopped in. I'm still kind of the new girl, just a couple of years. So it was another new, another new thing, just a couple of years after living there, you know? So it was, it was weird. It was, but I made the best of it. <laughs> what do you know? But um, the best thing happened is I, I made, I mean, I've made some of my lifelong friends at Brighton Academy, like the friends that are my soulmate friends. So I will never regret that experience in my life. And in that class, I mean, I have friends from all the different classes I was in, but two in particular stand out that I ended up, or three that I graduated with that I hadn't been close with before. I got lucky in that people, I found people that accepted me. <laughs> you know, when I was already, you know, had to join another new class. Oh, it's so hard. I mean, I just think about having to acclimate over and over again. I think about kids raised military families and ones who go from, you know, being housed or being unhoused and having to find the next place to live and be, and to be okay, that somehow you have to be okay. Um, And you have to be strong, you know, there's also something about learning that you can do that, that you can accommodate and you can acclimate, which is a good thing. What can happen in the process, and maybe let me know if this happened to you, is that you become kind of a chameleon. So you can lose track of you. Like, what do I want? Or is this making me happy? Or I don't have a choice. So I'm just going to go into this other persona that I know is going to be passable. And that a lot of people talk about leaving those environments and asking themselves then the big existential questions. Who am I? (laughs) And given the choice, what kind of life do I want to be living? And what environments do I want to be in? Who do I want to have be my friends? And do I have an opinion about this? Well, it turns out I do. And, you know, just learning you, finding out who you are along the way, which is part of the challenge. And that's what happened. And that's why I'm forever grateful that I got plopped into the, that class that I ended up graduating with. I spent four years in various, with various iterations of, they were usually, I mean, we're talking 12 to 13 kids. So our whole high school had 50 kids, um, but it was big for me because it was the only thing I knew. So getting plopped into this class freshman year, I met two of my 
or I got close to two of my best friends, Danny and David, who completely shaped my critical, the way I critically think about the world and us sort of going through high school together in particular. And there were others, but that class and because we studied together a lot and we, they're two people that I still admire to this day and appreciate to this day who shaped just we saw each other. We were able to be ourselves with each other. We could be authentic and and be weird and be different and and with with each other. And it was okay outside of our parents and other friends and the Brighton environment. It was just us being ourselves, and we all we honored that with each other. That was like respite to be with them. But yeah, the chameleon part is what I put on. You know, I was, I learned how to do that really well. And absolutely, I, or I became one and I just like a snapshot of my high school. I you know, played basketball. I was about a, a star, ba- not star, whatever, star basketball. It was a 1A basketball league. So very small, but I excelled in basketball because I grew up playing basketball with my brothers in LA. And it was very natural to me, no formality to it. So basketball was very natural. It's like, okay, I did that. And then I ended up being student body president and was on the, I mean, I just did everything. It's just like, I'm going all in. Cause I, I mean, from a kid, I, since childhood, I wanted to be president basically, or just be whatever. I never thought that I always felt I could be whatever I want to be. That's something that was instilled at home. And I also realized, just like you said, okay, I moved from LA, I'm in this, I can do whatever, you know, anything it is. And that's partially why sharing these stories and why being in the helping fields, and that's all that I've done as a professional, I believe that people are resilient and can overcome the most horrific life experiences. And I believe that in my core and my experiences only scratches the surface of what people I know and others have experienced that I know have survived and what I know they've survived and overcome. Not to take away from my own experience, but there's a spectrum of it all and it's all shapes who we are, but I think we can all find ways to overcome and adjust the right community and the right tools and the right love and compassion and the right people in our lives. And yeah, so as we're moving into that part of the conversation before we finish, uh, so much of what people want to hear about, I've heard on this podcast is not only about people's experiences, of course, but how you broke free and what it's been like since. And I'm curious also for you, what have you needed to relearn and kind of tell yourself about feeling certain things, about being a woman? in the world about how you deserve to be treated. If you're in a relationship, you've needed to work on gravitating towards a person who is going to see those parts in you that you want them to see uh, and is going to treat you a certain way that you were not taught that you deserve to be treated. I'm sure when you were younger, even though it sounds like the social interactions were nice Uh, and that's lovely that you had that. I'm really glad that you had that. And I'm sure that made up for a lot, but still just the kind of the self-talk that you have to redo or undo specifically, I think about being a woman in the world or just having, having a say, if you're at fault, if something happens to you here, having your skirt measured well is because you led someone on and that's why they did this thing to you, et cetera. So what teachings have you kind of rise to the top that, you know, you've had to work hard to really address and undo? The biggest lesson is that the 
the patriarchal structure in my family was a fallacy because while that was the teaching, my mother was really in charge. And seeing that firsthand made me realize that you can be taught something and be preached something, but what's actually playing out can be completely different. So while we tried to uphold that in our household, my mother, because she just had the more of the skills and the wherewithal and the capacity to be the lead and just have that role while my father was always loving and supportive and they just played different roles than we were being taught essentially. And it was, that was another thing that I had to work through. So that's my lens and why I know that we are doing a disservice to society by telling people they're supposed to act a certain way, if that makes sense. I think, you know, that's, so for me, I had this uncovered in my own home because I kept, so it would be sort of like, okay, go, go ask your dad if you can do this. And then I'd hear them talking and mom would make the final decision. Go, okay, well, I know what's happening here. Like, I know mom's in charge and they want us to think dad's in charge. I mean, that was essentially, and I uncovered that, that was clear. And I had my, my brother Taj and we could see it. They are trying to subscribe to something that isn't real. <laughs> I mean, that was, so, so for me though, with that said, it was damaging to be and hurtful and shame if and we were shamed for thinking different for seeing things different and that's where I go back to in my own household when I was anything different I had to hold back from being myself and you talked about it like I have to ensure that some of the sexist homophobic patriarchal beliefs that I grew up with don't you know, they're still imprinted in what the teachings that I had. We were taught that being gay was a sin. We were taught that abortion is a sin. We were taught that having sex before marriage was a sin. And when my mom thought that I was having pre premarital sex, she didn't talk to me for a summer. Yeah. And it was, I don't even think I had had sex yet. I waited until after high school. And that's the thing I thought I was a rule follower. You know, it was really interesting because I, I just, did the thing. I was just decided to be a rule follower. And it wasn't so easy for folks that didn't have them in, in, in them to do it. And that's another reason why I feel like it's important to tell stories. This is just my story. And the people, the number of folks that I've heard from after coming forward and starting my blog on Substack, it's been remarkable, quite frankly, the connections that I've made between the right-wing kind of teachings that are in the sexist and racist and homophobic teachings that we see with the MAGA Trump faction of our political system, those were the teachings that we were taught as children. And I can see that there were a split between folks that still perpetuate those beliefs to this day and those that, that don't. And I'm, I feel lucky and grateful that I ended up not subscribing to those, that line of beliefs, but I understand why those that do, do. And I don't think it's easier said than done to just, and that's another part of the message. A lot of folks don't understand why I can empathize and be real. I have a deep, deep, deep understanding with folks that are maybe still aligned with the far right or with MAGA or Trump or the Republican party. I do understand it. My family and close friends are still aligned with those beliefs. And a lot of it started with what Roy's teachings, you know, the group that I know anyway, it's, it morphed into what we see today as the most extreme right-wing political beliefs. And I, when I started to 
think a little more critically and just sort of go with what feels right. No, I don't hate gay people. They're just people and humans. No, I don't think we should tell a person what they do when they can, when, when they're pregnant. No. And I went, grew up going to anti-choice marches. Um, we had NRA stickers on our vehicle. So all, so I grew up knowing about what we see as the scary part of, in my opinion, the political um, movement right, right now. So that's, I just have to say that as we're talking today, because that's another part of my motivation. It scares me. I think we're, the country's going in a direction that I'm very, I pay attention to politics and my mom was a right wing activist and I consider myself an activist in the political forum in regards to my progressive beliefs. And I am very alarmed by the parallels that I see between the teachings the harmful teachings, I think the hateful teachings that I grew up with and what's embedded in our politics today. And I'll just say one last thing on this. What kind of prompted me to start writing a blog was I was homesick in January and I still have a little bit of it today. Um, I listened to all of the speeches during the 15 votes for Kevin McCarthy. I was in bed and I listened to every hour of that. Because I'm a political junkie and I like to know what's going on in the world and what's happening with these leaders and the messages they were spewing, the still nominating Trump the um, to be the House Speaker, the dis- disregard for anyone that's considered different, trans and queer folks, people of color, Black folks, women, that hate, hateful rhetoric is what I heard growing up. So that's what's most difficult. Like I've separated it from my up my childhood and I was able to grow out of it but the fact that it's still coming at me from now the leaders of our country is what scares the hell out of me because I think that those beliefs are grounded in hate those are my beliefs I I've, I've been deep in both sides and I'm here to promote love and I really am that person anyone that knows me personally I I would love and unity and and health and healing for people. And I just don't see it with what some of our politicians are doing. And I'm not saying the left wing is doing the right thing either. Our whole political system, as one of my heroes, Dr. Cornell West, says we might be seeing the failure of our American experience. And I think we need to reclaim some of our true beliefs about what we want to see as a society. Beautifully said. As we're finishing up, there's so, I mean, you have have so much wisdom to share and so many stories to share, and I wish we could talk some more and maybe we will at some point. Is there something else that you wanted to make sure to say a message you wanted to get across before we finished up? Thank you for that opportunity. I would love to speak again. There's so much more that's on my heart. And this, again, is just such a, I'm so grateful for this space and thank you, Rachel, for just offering it. Stories matter, stories shape everything. And I just encourage others to tell their stories, share their stories. I want to thank those that have reached out to me privately to share their stories and solidarity and those who have also reached out with questions and curiosity and the whys and and all of that. I also want to stress that I recognize that there's a spectrum of cult and mind control environments. For those that know me know that My husband, Aaron, was born into a fundamentalist Mormon environment, and his sister, Ruth Warner, wrote her story in The Sound of Gravel as her her book. And finding that solidarity in folks that have broken cycles or overcome tremendous family trauma is really healing. So find your community, folks, and you, you are not alone. 
no matter what your story is or how you feel or how you look at yourself or how you identify, how whatever you are seeing, I just want to affirm folks out there that your story matters, the way you see the world matters, the way you exist in this world matters. Every story matters. That is 100% why I'm here And I want everyone to just know that. And we are, I know a lot of people are in pain in the world right now, across the whole world, people are just suffering. And um, we need to hear the people's stories of pain and be seen because we are seeing just this moment of crisis. I worked closely when I lived in Montana on the, on youth suicide epidemic. I mean, who wants to say that? That was something that I worked on. I worked with unhoused folks in Montana. I don't want to, I, I want, you know, I, I'm a dreamer and I want to save the world. I want world peace and, and, um, or if it's a nonviolent revolution, whatever it is, something is off on how we love each other. And I really want to bring us back to, or bring us to, we've never seen it. I mean, we, especially in America, we started a country on genocide on the backs of black folks. And when we don't talk about that, honestly, we don't talk about much, honestly, and it's hard to, and we don't hear enough of those stories and how that, those origins affect how we can honestly shape the society we want. Oh, that's so beautifully said. It's reminding me just, I had this in my head of, you know, helping people know that when they have things yelled at them, people sometimes need that for their own self-esteem, I think, to raise themselves above other people. So it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with them getting their needs met. Uh, as hollow as that is, as an attempt uh, to do that. But also it comes from not understanding and not knowing. Yes. And so it just is not understanding. Yeah. So you had mentioned something that you were putting together for the public to tell us a little bit about it, where people can find it. Sure. So I recently, in January, I started a blog on the platform Substack where you can just self publish your words. It's Breaking the Cycle by Marissa Hackett. You can Google it, find it um, on Substack. And I'm essentially telling my life story. And I set the tone by starting off talking about Roy Masters and the Foundation. And that is through the lens that I'm talking about my life. But the most current post was about my love for Aaron and Valentine's Day. So it's a whole spectrum. It's just about me. My Instagram is also public. It's Marissa Hearts You. I post a lot about music. I'm a big music head and my family. It's pretty light stuff there. Some political stuff as well. But um, I hope to connect with folks and thank you again for this space. Of course. And so everyone check those things out. I think it's going to resonate with so many people. I hope to talk to you again. And it was great getting to know you today. You as well, Rachel. Thank you. One more thing before you go. It's so powerful to hear when Marissa talks about her experiences, when she talks about what it was like for her to have to be sent away from the life that she knew and then sent away from family members and then not seen as the same as the other people around her, not having peers and then feeling so othered and so different. That's hard on any kid. But on top of it, she had to deal with so many things that I deal with a lot in my work. The idea of modesty. Now, yes, there are some boys and some men who also are set with that level of control over what they can wear, 
Some are not able to wear shorts in some religious groups. But really, by and large, the focus is on the women. And skirts are measured and punishments are given out to the women. And just think about the message that that gives girls and women that they have to cover themselves up. They have to cover their bodies up. They have to cover their hair up. They have to cover their whole face up. Even though in some places they're in sweltering heat in some of the countries they live in. And I know there are some women who would talk about passing out in the heat. They'd have to be covered from head to toe in a dark garment, carrying a baby, carrying groceries, and not getting any relief, not getting any help, and just passing out. There was something really powerful that happened. I remember when I was young, I remember hearing a story about something that happened in Israel where the prime minister, Golda Meir, at the time, she was the prime minister from uh, 1969 to, I believe, 74, the first female prime minister of Israel, the first female head of state in the Middle East. And there had been an issue with women getting attacked late at night. And someone in her cabinet said that he thought there should be a curfew enforced across the country. And Golda Meir said that that was a good idea. But then he went on to say, so what time should we decide the women need to go home? And she said, the women? And he said, well, of course. And she said, are the women attacking the men? Or are the men attacking the women? If it's the men attacking the women, the men need to go home. That was seen as so revolutionary, but it makes sense. If someone were to come into my house to rob me, I don't think the police would say, well, you and your family all need to leave. What? Who's the one who's doing something wrong? They're the ones who have to leave. They're the ones who have to go home. But that's not the way society is in most of the world. And women are so often made to feel like they have enticed the man And men are made to feel that if they have any kind of feeling about a woman that is considered unholy or unclean or impure, that the woman caused it. There was a meme I saw once that said, girls' bodies are not responsible for boys' thoughts. It was very powerful. And so I hope for a future where women don't have to dress differently than men. Women don't have to cover themselves up or risk being beaten because they have incited a feeling in a man. I wish for a time where boys and girls are taught self-control to the same degree, where if boys or men are having impure thoughts, they find ways and learn ways to control them. Instead of making women have to be quiet and not sing out loud and pray out loud like some of the services I've been to, where women don't have to cover themselves to the point of suffering and never being seen, It's much easier to dehumanize someone who doesn't look like a human, where you can't see them. And so I want everyone to be able to be shown. I want everyone to be able to be seen. And I want there to be this idea of modesty given to everyone equally. I think it's a good goal to be respectful out in society and show some modesty. But it will only be something I support if it is something that is needing to be upheld by both people, by all genders, equally. It would be wonderful for women, and it would be wonderful for men to also be able to stand up tall knowing that they have enough self-control. There was a very innocent little boy 
I remember who I saw one time at a service. I was invited to an Orthodox service. And his mom was given a hard time for praying out loud. And when she was told to stop because her voice was a distraction to the men, but the men could pray out loud, this boy <laughs> very sweetly said, don't tell my mom to be quiet. She has a beautiful voice, much better than yours, he said <laughs> to the rabbi. And I remember she laughed, but there was nothing she could do. And there was nothing this little boy could do. But I love in this innocence that it just didn't make sense. It didn't feel right. And so I support all of you for speaking up when things just don't feel right. And they don't feel right when they're not fair, when a rule only applies to one group of people and not the other. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.